Welcome to the Smart Talk series, a Henry George School of Social Science podcast. The Smart Talk series is a weekly podcast with an array of discussions held with academics, policymakers, practitioners, and other professionals to explore new ideas and theories within the economics field. Today, our episode comes from our most recent annual conference, Rebuilding the Economy After the Pandemic, Challenges and Avenues of Reform. We'll pick up where we left off and discuss the idea of a circular economy with Michael Morris. Dr. Morris received his PhD from Liverpool University and later went on to become a postdoctoral fellow at Imperial College in London before moving to Strathclyde University as a lecturer. He was appointed to a post in materials chemistry at UCC in 1993 and while there held the chair for inorganic chemistry. We were lucky enough to talk with Dr. Morris, who spoke to us about sustainability, the difference between a linear and circular economy, and a history of the circular economy. We hope you enjoy this talk, and please check back on our page every week for a brand new episode. I've worked in polymers for about 30 years. I'm obviously a scientist. I work very closely with plastics of all times, but specializing in self-assembly, which is the formation of these kind of patterns which is shown here, uh, this is a mixture of polymers which separate in these beautiful lines. I'm working with companies like Intel in building computer chips from that type of technology, reducing both the energy and the material uh, uh, inputs to uh, electronics. And then also looking at how we might change some of these synthetic fossil fuel polymers in terms of their use into things like this is actually lignin, which is derived from wood, creating membrane structures which actually go into uh, things like lateral flow assay. As Marty said, I'm on the author team for ISO 323 and I'll bring a lot of that um, work into this presentation, I hope. And I also advise uh, both the Northern Irish and Southern Irish governments on uh, implementing the circular economy on the island of Ireland. Um, should say, and um, what I know about economics could be written on the back of one of these. So this is a postage stamp uh, for Christmas, uh, reflecting, I guess, the uh, the nature of this session. And um, should think about, I think, the circular economy as being something which is completely different. Um, and I guess I kind of think about things in terms of three particular ages. So the pre-industrial age where we essentially practiced a form of serfdom, but we were very connected with what we did, with how we used resources, how we disposed of them. We did by nature, because of poverty and other reasons, keep good in circulation. But we were very connected with that supply. And then along in the late 1700s, of course, we're hit by uh, industrial revolution spanning out across the UK. Uh, into Europe and, and further afield. And uh, uh, this fellow, John Kay, is often uh, described as the, the catalyst which started this off. Now, I think that's a bit unfair. Clearly, in the late 1700s, uh, uh, Britain dominated the, uh, uh, the colonial world, um, very large shipping uh, nation, uh, and had a heavy supply of resources, and they were the real drivers for why the circular economy took off. But he's oft, often credited with this, 
And his invention, although actually, strictly speaking, it wasn't an invention, he was sent by his father to work in mills in France and, and more or less copied this discovery, the flying shuttle. It was nothing more than uh, uh, an aid. It's not mechanised in the sense that we would think about it. It's just a box on wheels with the yarn, the weave uh, on this treadle. This was just literally thrown across the loom as the arms opened and closed from one person to another. It was mechanised in a way that hadn't been seen before because before on large looms, largely for, for ship uh, sails, it was, the thread was passed from person to person across the weave and then passed back um, to create the, the thing. But this enabled people, A, actually make larger weaves, but also to speed up the process and also to uh, reduce the number of people doing it. Um, and then, of course, this really did couple to the invention of the spinning jenny, which operated this interwoven system, began to revolutionize the tech, textile industry. And then we got all the sorts of supply, demand, the localization, the creation of factories, the use of steam to drive engines. But basic urbanization movement of towns and cities from just marketplaces into places of construction um, and actually changed the world from ever. But what it principally did, of course, is we urbanized, we disconnected ourselves from resource and waste. It's just something magically that happens. We get stuff on our doorsteps, uh, our refuse and trash is taken away automatically. How that's recycled is something we're just not connected to anymore at all. And it also in, in kind of developed our concept of mass production and consumerism that we're in now. But of course, we're about to hit crunch times. I'm not going to you know, tell people about the motivation for moving to a more sustainable way of production. It just has to be done. Climate change is with us. But we're also seeing massive pollution of our air and our waterways. Um, by all the things which make our modern life so comfortable uh, and so profitable, of course. So we are at the verge of this change from one age into next. And I think we don't know what that is going to look like going forward. Here's the problem. We've developed this linear economy where basically we extract resources, we make things out of them, we dispute them and sell them, we use them, we just throw them away with no connection to what that happens. It's all a little bit of magic um, which modern society has taken away from us. But we haven't got that link anymore with actually what we're doing. So we see very little of the effects of the way we live our lives. Circular economy is an alternative to this, and there are many people who are against it, but it's kind of the uh, strategy that has really developed pace uh, over the last 30 years. So brief history, uh, and the bolding, the, the economists really led this with the concept of this spaceship Earth, where he actually essentially said that what we live on is a planet with boundaries. 
And although he didn't mention the circular economy by name, he talked about the linear, linear processes and closed processes where we live within the spaceship and everything would have to be recycled. He also noted the need that this was a, a really dramatic change that would happen. In fact, he said it shouldn't be thought about in 1966, it should be thought about in the future, but that it would only happen with the help of intervention by government and legislation. In 1988, the first use of the term sacred economy was coined. Um, and that concept was then later developed by a number of authors. And I've picked out David Pearce, Kerry Turner, uh, William McDonough, uh, about the kind of uh, the, the publications that really drove, drove the way we think about this at all. Um, Within that time frame, the circular economy has changed. The early concept, of course, was about recycling uh, as the solution. And we now recognize that recycling on its own doesn't represent a solution. So one of the things that we even we've had within ISO 323, which has been moving forward for the, the last two years, is that the definition and the actions which sustain circular processes are still changing. Um, and hopefully we can maybe address why. Um, but two big things, I, I, I think, just picking this out. Um, the circular economy was framed by China in 2006, and it's one of the reasons why they've really led things like uh, battery power and some other concepts over the last few years. And it was enshrined in their 11th uh, five-year plan and is still in their current plan, the 16th. Uh, last year. So we can see these, these changes. Europe developed the concept uh, in terms of what's called the Circular Economy Action Plan, uh, the first one in 2015. And it really was a, a trying to enable this transition towards a circular approach, um, fostering sustainable economic growth, generating new jobs, 54 key actions, which were all delivered or reported on in 2019, the end of the first plan. Um, and one of the critical things it did was create a framework. I've just taken a, literally a, a picture of, uh, of that website, just showing uh, weight of these lines, thickness of them represents amounts. And guess shows the challenge that even when we think about recycling, you can see how little that adds to our material use. So although we've had this concept that we need to disconnect ourselves from resource use, we still haven't done a whole pile in honesty about it. Um, it's been framed in the new European Green Deal with the revision of the Circular Action Plan. I've just labeled some of the things that we're supposed to do. Um, looking at improving product durability, we'll talk about this. Um, legislation would follow, so we have impending resolution, which essentially follows um, the US bottle laws about minimum recycled content in products. Um, see, already we've enacted our single-use plastics rule, uh, which in all honesty doesn't seem to have made an awful lot of difference. I still get uh, takeaway plastic spoons. Um, at least there is some legislation, even if it's not been enforced. Um, looking at products as services so instead of uh, buying something you can lease it you can rent it uh, 
for shorter periods. So there's a whole pile of actions in there, which we hope will really drive the circular economy forward. Essentially, at the moment, we think about what the circular economy is doing, is disconnecting us from taking of resources. We're not going to take resources. We're going to, in the initial thoughts, recycle them, take a whole pile of actions to stop us building up a huge trash dumps and try to make these materials again and avoid this. And I showed the largest open cast mine in the world. Uh, and just to reiterate the scale of, of damage that we're doing. We're trying to apply these to the technosphere. I'm not going to talk about, about it very much, but we should also think about um, a circular economy in the biosphere as well, or the biocircular economy. Um, and that's because we haven't done. We still see a lot of, a lot of effort used to take an alternate sources of materials from the, the bio, uh, biosphere. We've, we've done an awful lot of damage there because we've not applied the concept of circularity to things like uh, arable land uh, from forestry. We know the effect that's having. Um, the biggest source of emissions, CO2 emission equivalents, in the last 50 years is this change from forestry to crop, arable land. We also see the contribution of ammonia-based fertilizers, um, which is essentially a form of fossil fuel. Um, but without them, our food uh, output dropped by a factor of two or three. So this incredible use of fertilizers based on currently uh, fossil fuels, um, an absolute necessity and something that we need to think about in terms of food security. But we don't have any available or very little available arable land without hitting things like forests and savannah. So we do need to think about the techniques that we're developing in the technosphere and applying them to the biosphere. Um, fortunately, we can't take solutions like uh, Thanos developed in the Avengers, uh, which has caused a mass extermination. But we've got to remember as well to balance all these things about relative values. So we can't just say we're not using fossil fuel to make ammonia um, because it's so critical to the way that we live and the food we eat. And we're seeing more and more pressures, of course, as uh, uh, developing nations become developed and the relative food demand and the quality of food demand goes, goes up. So ammonia uh, is responsible for about 500 million tonnes of carbon dioxide a year. At the current moment, it's about 1% to 2% of all emissions. So it's a relatively small amount. It's a large amount of gas, and it's eaten into our gas reserves. Um, and a significant amount of uh, petroleum. It's got to be balanced by the fact that crop and livestock activities uh, are about 10 times more. And if we equate that with also uh, the change uh, from uh, 
forestry and grassland to arable land, which kind of doubles that, the ammonia production is, is fairly limited. It's limited when we compare it to energy production from fossil fuels, which is about 33 gigatons. So fossil fuel, the, the ammonia that drives us should not be a focus. And we have to value all of those changes. Um, technology has been developed. I, I've just put it up there. Um, this is the thing that we think about uh, as being a real driver of the chemical industry. At formation of syngas, which is a mixture of carbon monoxide and hydrogen, that gives us everything from synthetic fuels through to the hydrogen and ammonia production, and then methanol synthesis, which then goes on to generate, generate things like ethylene, ethylene oxide, polyethylene, and everything else that we use. So there are certain things we can do, but there's certain things that we can't do. Um, I just put up this. This is essentially... Uh, uh, Production of syngas and over very expensive catalysts, uh, then the conversion to ammonia, which is the basic uh, stock of fertilizer. Incredibly complicated and incredibly valuable. So, this is the Harbour Bosch process, which in itself was responsible for the extension of the First World War from a few months to five years, um, because ammonia is also the principal form of explosives as well. So, we see this very complicated pattern and we really have to pick and choose our battles going forward. But this is our circular economy. It's disconnecting us from waste by looking at the circulation of resources. Then plastic bottles, that uh, copper uh, from electrical goods. Um, but it's not simply recycling anymore. Uh, passed out of vague some years ago has been the wrong concept. Um, and it really is about avoiding use, avoiding manufacturing. Um, we always see these terms, uh, reduce, reuse, recycle, use quite bluntly. It is about just simply not using the same amount of material or reusing less and less as time goes on. So when we think about the circular economy, we think about, these types of actions. So critical one is minimizing energy. Um, that's in light of manufacturing, for instance, but you've also got to think about energy as really being the thing that's going to power cars and reduce our reliance on uh, energy for heating, etc. So this is going to be a challenge. We think about reduction of production and reduction of production. So less and less virgin materials being used. Distribution is a, is a key element. In many cases, it's a distinguishing feature is just not being able to transport things very far and looking at local resources and transport within the circular economy. Then we look at use. So how do we think use things for longer times? How do we intensify use? How do we dematerialize the way that we live today? That, ex that exchange extends to things like looking at how we use infrastructure in a more concentrated, intense way, reducing our land use, sharing facilities, not replicating things at small volume and looking at the volumes that are appropriate for the supply and demand. And a big part of the circular economy is linked to this concept of reducing resource extraction 
and maximizing land use. So land is a critical part of the circular economy, but often forgotten. Um, we then avoid disposal waste by doing it. So really the circular economy is aiming for this perfect storm of less resource use, no waste. So zero resource, zero use would be the ultimate goal. This is the definition that's come out of ISO TC323. It's taken two years, I guess, to, to really define the circular economy like this. But an economic system that uses a systemic approach to maintain a circular flow of resources by regenerating, retaining, or adding value and contributing to this to sustainable development. And I kind of want to break down each of these. So it's an economic system. And very often by scientists, we forget that at the heart, this is an alternative economy. Um, so we have to think about costs. Um, because in the end, what we want is not to wind the clock backwards toward a pre-industrial age, but to keep winding the clock, the clock forward to generate the sort of social uh, changes um, that we've seen for the last couple of hundred years. Uses a systemic approach. So it breaks each of the manufacturing process. So whatever you want to think about, um, a computer design, a plastic bottle, a beverage bottle, whatever, we break that into various steps and we look at the life cycle of those materials. We measure the resources, the losses, the emissions, and also things like embodied carbon. That's a critical element of this. It's taking the system and breaking that system into parts. We need to measure, quantify, qualify, carry out the assessments, because all these things have to be balanced. There's costs, there's the environmental costs, there's the social costs, and they all have to be balanced if the circular economy is to be meaningful. And we need that to address KPIs, and develop strategies within companies, within businesses, within countries, within organizations. We need accurate data because very often that data is aggregated, even within a single company. But certainly at regional and governmental level, we look at aggregated data. So we don't want to fold error upon error. We need accuracy in our measurements. We need to make comparative assessments. So is a Coke bottle better than a Pepsi bottle? When something says it's 100% recyclable, what does that mean? So we need to have the detail and the assessment that does it. Of course, the other people that are really involved uh, that I haven't mentioned so far is all our consumers. We need reliable information to make informed choice and decisions. Um, Circular flow of resources, and, and this is really crucial and something that many people forget about. If we take a shirt, right, so textiles, they can be recycled into uh, 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 things like carpets. We see that all the time. Most of the carpets we have are actually recycled plastic of some form. We don't recycle the carpet, so it's being downcycled. An open loop process, we've delayed this disposal but we haven't stopped. What we really need to think about are things like where we reformed the article to be used again in the form that it was wanted. But we have to balance how we do that. Taking um, 
two examples. So on the right, we can see uh, what happens with glass. So glass is infinitely recyclable, very old technology. We can recycle 95, 97% of it in some EU countries. It's such a simple process. It's easy to detect when we throw it away uh, at sorting stations. We don't do anything complicated. We put it into a big furnace, we melt it again, and we cast it into bottles. And that can happen continually. When we have a look at plastics, make them, we sell them. For some strange reason, there's a customer feeling that glass has value and plastic doesn't. So 30% of our plastic we use never reaches a sorting station or a waste management facility. It just is lost from the system. It ends up being burnt as general waste, etc. Then we have to sort it because now we have uh, about 15,000 different polymer types. Sorting it becomes problematical. So that when we think about recycling, about 30% of all polymer is recycled globally. So I'll talk a little bit about that because it questions how we monitor these things. Only about 2% of all the bottles we throw away in packaged bottles. So recycling is far from efficient. We don't have the technology yet. Then if we look around this 30%, which doesn't kind of add up, it's because we count recycling the amount of material that's sorted. That's the global way of measuring recycling. Um, but actually, about 14% of it is downcycled, and about 14% is lost. So we, our recycling rates are so small in reality, back to products of value, that plastic re recycling, for instance, becomes a challenge. And that's just one material. Um, the other really important thing about this is regenerating, retaining, or adding to the value. And this is a concept which really is an absolute necessity. So value isn't about the economic value. It's about the total value of the products that we have. So it includes things like social, environmental, and economic costs. And at the moment, because companies don't really pay, for sorting, for remediation of land, etc., we really don't think they don't pay the full cost. Um, so when we look at, say, plastic, recycled plastic, there's a world shortage, and it's about the twice the cost of virgin plastic, simply because the recycling and all the other efforts are not borne by the manufacturer. So it's going to take well-thought-out legislation, well-thought-out tax regimes, and well-thought-out investment regimes to really drive the circular economy forward just because we don't value things properly. I won't really talk about sustainable development uh, very much. and I'll, um, I'll kind of leave these actions behind. I've kind of talked about most of them. There's kind of a couple of other points. There's enormous barriers and challenges that we need if we're going to do this. I've just picked some of them that we get, this greenwashing. So um, I was very pleased that I got my new HP printer cartridges delivered the other day, and they came in sustainable packaging. I still have a $50 printer head, which I throw away. 
You know, so we have to think very easily. Um, this is my football team shirt, which is labelled as being recycled, but it's going to end up in a bin somewhere. We really have to think about this. And there are such enormous challenges. And I'm just going to pick out a few of them in, in my closing slides. Change in the business models, right? So whichever way, so uh, economy 101, you know, circular capital flows. You know, really, this is about buying. It's just circulation of stuff. It's just buying more stuff. It's doing more stuff. It's great, but it can't go on. Uh, we only have two controls. We have government controls and institutions. And how they're going to change that this established form of economy is really difficult. Um, and it's going to be very different. And, I, you know, I thought about this from the Industrial Revolution. So... This is uh, an engraving from 1723 and a typical uh, woman working on a spinning wheel. And then around the time of the invention of the loom, you, you know, just 40 years later, we saw a kind of scaled. And 40 years after that, we had factories as we recognize them. With the, all the change, so we don't know what this is going to look like uh, going forward. We have very complex supply chains. So just looking at that plastic bottle, you know, it's essentially fossil fuel. We have the catalyst, which you use to make the plastics. We have all the infrastructure. Plastics aren't simple things. They contain up to 30 different chemicals that makes them unreactive, makes them stable to light, makes them stable to energy. We have transport. It's an international business. We take oil from whichever source is cheapest all the currency exchange, and we have complex trade agreements. So taking this and just recycling it on an infinite loop would have enormous uh, contributions to that supply chain. Even within then, we have massive complications of turning fossil fuel to gas. So we have all the other hidden industries within those supply chains. And as before, the technology isn't mature you know we have two percent bottle to bottle recycling and we're not getting any closer in the last 10 years to solving that problem biopolymers are five percent of the market five percent and growing slower than our use of fossil fuel plastics you know by 2050 we're going to be using a million tons of plastics which is about twice the sugarcane production in the whole of the world to give it some sort of scale the technical problems of implementing a circular economy from a recycling point of view are enormous. And then when we look at how we measure it, um, this is just a taxonomy of the things that we might measure, flows, strategies, impacts, begin to see this really difficult problem for companies to even grasp if they're going to involve themselves in circularity of what they should be measuring and how they're going to measure it. So measurements and how we report those measurements are incredibly uh, difficult. I won't talk about this too much. So how do we foster? We must have legislation. We must have standards and they must be enforceable. We need transparency. We need things like resource and material passports. And we need a new way of thinking. We really need an innovative way to think about things. And we need an innovative way to drive the technology forward. And 
maybe one of the things that we should think about because it's so pivotal in terms of the circular economy is land. So just to take the example of copper, in 2011, about 400,000 hectares used for copper mining. By 2050, we'll be at a, about double that or two and a half times that. Circular economy and most of that. So it's really valuable land. So should we be using legislation and policy to really promote better land use? Now, European, uh, the European approach to this uh, is based on a, this action plan uh, where we look at regions and cities and try to think about the sort of things we can do. Land is ultimately valuable and we don't have much of it. So actually looking at land as a way of fostering circular approaches the driver and a catalyst for the circular economy may well be something that we should think about. And um, here's uh, the smart city approach, looking at how we make cities that uh, are more sustainable, that we fully use the land, be this within the city, on field sites, within sites within the regions, looking at our materials. We have to think about how we use land and how we use construction in a really critical way if we're going to drive the circular economy forward. I'm just going to finish with two examples from Ireland of how we've kind of used or are using land to, uh, to drive change. So uh, this is from the middle of the country. Most of Ireland is a large peat bog. And this is our traditional industry. Of one of our forms of energy was cutting that peat uh, and using it uh, first as a way of uh, fueling uh, domestic fires, also as a form of energy recovery. Now, this has been banned uh, going forward. The peatlands are being recovered uh, as a CO2 sink and increasing our biodiversity. Also coupled to it, initiatives like uh, using the biomass from this, drive energy, first of all, but then to drive a bioeconomy where we use it to drive plastics. But human behavior is so critical in this. It's because we've banned uh, peat harvesting, we're so used to having peat domestically and our kind of uh, adherence to those old practices. We're now importing peat from Germany, which then no, makes no sense in the circular economy because we're now adding transport to an already carbon intensive form of heating. But it's a, a way that we're, we're thinking about, in a national case, about improving our biodiversity through circular actions. The other example that we've got, I think, is, is uh, classic. It's called it's Lichine Miles, which was a copper, silver, lead mine, opened in about 1990 and mined to about 2015 when it became unprofitable, had a couple of uh, uh, accidents. Uh, but about 450 hectares was, uh, was released. Uh, the land was recovered by the owners and together with uh, the county council, uh, the local authority in this case, they decided to change that site into uh, a green site for green industry. Um, so it became a green energy hub and you can see some of the uh, turbines being brought up that were actually originally used to drive the mines. It became our national bioeconomy campus, looking at startups and pilot plants for looking at biological bioeconomy uh, aspects within the region. 
It was classed as a model demonstrator region within Europe, which allowed release of fundings. And um, the Irish Bioeconomy Foundation now, which is a pilot and stayed for looking at bioeconomy processes. One of these was some of the technology we developed around uh, earning way into a plastic for offsetting uh, uh, fossil fuel use. Uh, Ambien are now building that process into a full-scale manufacturing plant where the way is converted all the, the uh, minerals are ex extracted and they build a plant. Uh, it's also home for a mushroom substrate facility where the mushroom is actually also used to make plastics as well as, as food. And so you can see the way the councillors got into this to start up, to generate startups through the land use and generated circularity. So that's my last slide. Uh, maybe finish with just saying it's going to need the circular economy. It's such a significant challenge. It's going to precipitate huge societal and economic changes, and it's going to need enormous government and industry investment to make it happen. Okay. So thank you. I know slightly over, but uh, I hope that was uh, short and brief enough to get the concept across. And that's it for this week's episode of Smart Talk. Thank you for listening, and we hope it made you think. If you'd like to learn more about our research, check out hgsss.org. That's hgsss.org. If you'd like to listen to our content as soon as it's published, subscribe to our show. If you like our show, please leave us a rating, review, or even share with a friend. It goes a long way. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week.